This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX. That's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for the third week of February 2018. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's an assistant professor of systematic theology at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. David, my pleasure. Good to be with you. So on today's show, we're going to be looking at three topics. First of all, Dan and I are going to be talking about some of the challenges, blessings, and issues we see surrounding the teaching of theology here today in the 21st century. Next, we'll be looking at the recent market correction and explore the ways in which the stock market in our culture is kind of treated like a god, or at least a a demigod, maybe a false idol. And finally, on the show today, we're happy to welcome our friend Gil Ostik. He's professor of liturgy at Catholic Theological Union, and we're going to be talking with him about the continuing evolution of Catholic liturgy and language in the 21st century. So, Dan, how have you been? David, good. Good. Things are things are good. Um, as our listeners have heard of the last couple episodes, I've been relatively not so mendicant, not so itinerant. I've been local, which is nice, but this weekend I'm heading back on the road and I've got a lot of upcoming speaking uh, engagements, you know, lectures and leading retreats. So I'm looking forward to that, but also I'm going to miss being here in beautiful Hyde Park in the south side of Chicago. How are you? You've been on the road a lot. I have. I, I went and I, I I think I talked about this before. I went and recorded a new podcast for an organization in Washington, D.C. called Freedom Road. And that first podcast came out at the beginning of February. And so I would encourage people to go and hear that at freedomroad.us. And it's really good. Uh, I, w- I was blown away by the, the power of the testimony. They're talking about Me Too, a topic that we've covered here. But also one of the people in the panel was a person who sort of started the uh, silence is not spiritual hashtag and the the sort of response coming out of the church to movement and the notion that, you know, evangelicals and people of faith need to be hearing and responding to these stories that are coming out of the Me Too movement. So that was powerful. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm producing shows and I'm, I'm continuing to work on things not seen and I'm continuing to write my books and all of that is very good. And I've been, I've been enjoying the snowy weather. My kids and I have gone sledding several times in the past couple of weeks. So as somebody who retired from sledding some years back, <laughs> I'm not as happy with the snow, Sure, but it is Chicago in winter. And so what do we expect? Well, let's get into our first topic. And so, uh, Dan, you have been a teacher of theology for more than a decade, if I remember that correctly. 
Oh, I guess so. Yeah. Kind of off and on. Oh my gosh, it's getting close. I taught my first theology class at the college level in 2009. Mm-hmm. So that's about nine years now. Yeah. Yeah. And you've been doing it longer. Well, I, I got started in about 2006 and teaching full time. And I was on the faculty at a historically black college in Nashville. And then I then joined the faculty in 2009 at a Catholic school, Christian Brothers University down in Memphis, Tennessee, and taught there for several years. And then left full-time teaching in 2013 to come here and and work in the nonprofit world here in Chicago. But I have continued to have my foot in the teaching world, and so I teach at Loyola probably about once a year, twice a year, depending on what they need. I teach a a, a summer seminar, a week-long summer seminar at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary up in Evanston. And I'm going to be doing some work here at the Lutheran School of Theology in the spring, teaching on theology and social media. So I, oh, that's I, awesome! I try and keep these chops there, but it's not a it's not a full time gig in that sense. I'm an itinerant professor, so that's true. <laughs> you you carry a little placard. We'll we'll teach for uh, for, for for podcasts. I will teach for I I will literally <laughs> teach for uh, student loan repayment money. That's kind of what <laughs> I'm doing right now. That that is. Probably not the most favorite reason to teach, but but certainly a reason. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so one of the things, as as two people who are teachers and who teach theology, it's interesting to think about what are some of the challenges, what are some of the blessings. You know, I I have experienced in the past, uh, as you mentioned, not not as much as you do in terms of the consistency over a period of time. At this point in my career, I've 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 probably taught more graduate courses than I have taught undergrad courses. I did teach full-time for a year at Siena College, a Franciscan university in upstate New York, mm. and uh, have taught or TA'd the undergrad level subsequently. But, you know, I've uh, taught mostly in the graduate level here at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, also the Boston College School of Theology and Ministry. And so I, I, it's interesting sometimes to think about the the differences and the similarities but also the the respective challenges and promises. So, you know, most of my colleagues, most of my friends who are theologians teach primarily undergrad populations. So we have kind of a reverse situation. We have these interesting conversations at times because one thing that I miss, you know, of course, and, and maybe you can reflect on this as well from, from several years of, of teaching full-time undergrads. On the one hand, there's this kind of cynical read among theologians and professors that, oh gosh, kids these days, you know, they're not interested in theology, they're not interested in religion, especially if they're at a denominational school, they have to take so many religion courses and they're, it's like pulling teeth, so I got to entertain them and so on and so forth. And I think there's some truth in that. Maybe some people exaggerate it more than others. But I'll tell you one thing that I miss sometimes is the kind of brain exploding moments which are so precious when, especially students who come into a religion class, maybe they went to Catholic school or a Christian high school or something, and they think they know what theology is. And then all of a sudden, they start learning, and a couple weeks in, they're like, I am so confused. I don't know what's going on. And then and a couple of weeks later, their heads start exploding with these insights. And they say, wow, I never thought of this, or I never considered that, or, oh, that's what this really is all about. Oh, I always thought it was something else. And particularly those students for whom the light comes on and a, and a flame is lit of passion, and some of them actually go on to pursue graduate work in theology or to go on to become theologians. And I've had a few experiences of of that. I call my theological babies. And to watch them grow up in theology is exciting. But even the everyday experience where young men and women come into the classroom and, and they really 
this is their first time on their own learning about things. I mean, have you had that experience? What, what's it like? And do you resonate with those challenging remarks too, where people are like, oh gosh, I got to entertain them, blah, blah, blah. Well, so you hit on so many pieces there and they're all good. One of the things that I think is important to keep in mind is that when you're teaching graduate students, you're teaching people that have been already formed and have made a choice to come into a program that is specifically designed to teach them, give them a theological grounding and to teach them some kind of ministerial language, some kind of pastoral language. So there, you have a very self-selected group and you 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 put your finger exactly on it that when when you're teaching at a religious school like like I did down in Memphis you have what are called service courses which is every student has to take some kind of course in theology slash religion slash philosophy in order to graduate, which means that you have a lot of students that are there for something else. They came to be baseball players. They came to be engineers. They came to be computer programmers, which was the case oftentimes in the school that I taught down in Memphis. And they were not interested in, or they were outright hostile to, to the presentation of religious ideas. And so a lot of what I did in my introductory classes was designed to shake up and to acknowledge that hostility and to meet it head on and to give them very concrete examples. And so I would literally take students out into the quadrangle and I would point in two directions. I'd say, okay, uh, you know, 200 yards that way, there's a smokestack, which is made of about 4,000 bricks and it stands about 75 feet high. Right in front of us, there's a clock tower. And on top of that clock tower is a cross and it's made of about 4,000 bricks and it stands about 75 feet high. For the next five minutes, I want everybody to, to call out one at a time every difference that you see between these two objects. Why does the one exist and why does the other exist? It took money to build that smokestack, and it serves a purpose. It took a similar amount of money to build that clock tower. What possible service does that clock tower have in this community? And besides telling the time, which is an important piece if you want to orient a, a community towards things like prayer, the notion of having... The, the cross on top and everything like that, that gave us a chance to start to talk about things like the Axis Mundi, the notion of a gathering place, a, a, a thin space between heaven and earth. And, you know, all of this was just designed to make them realize that they're constantly walking past objects that have a symbolic meaning and that people spend money on to create. And the people who spend the money to create these things with deep symbolic meaning take them very seriously. And so if you want to navigate in the world, you at least want to know why these people are taking those sorts of things seriously. So I, I tried to be very pragmatic and just realize that the people were going to have hostility oftentimes to the subjects I was teaching and that in the process of trying to engage them around that, to engage them pragmatically and say if you're an engineer or if you're a fundraiser, you want to go out into the world and you want to find out why someone would spend money on a brick for this and not a brick for that. Those were the kind of simple questions I would try and use to navigate. I'm not sure how successful it was on the on the completely hostile students, but but I did find that there were times when students would warm up to the idea, at least of what I was trying to do. Yeah, I think you you hit something on, on the nail on the head right there with this this idea that um, for a lot of students, particularly, and I'm skeptical of of language that is too binary. You know, the secular versus the religious or the sacred. You know, particularly as a Catholic, you know, I think Gaudium et Spes is right. We are the church in the world. There, There is no kind of major division. Uh, and without going down a rabbit hole talking about Charles Taylor in a secular age, I, I have my own questions about such rigidly defined bifurcation. Nevertheless, I think there is this kind of culture where young people today 
can come into a classroom, could live their life, even if they're nominally religious, come from some kind of religious background, nevertheless think that it's a private enterprise. It's something that they do. It's about them and God or them and their own kind of flourishing and this sort of thing, or that it has no further ramifications for the rest of the world, their lives, their their future partners, their children, their careers, and so forth. And I think one of the interesting things about theology is that it is, as one of my mentors now, maybe 15 years ago, once said to me, theology is about life or death. Mm. We do theology because if we don't, it, 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 people may die. Mm-hmm. And, and it sounds a little hyperbolic. You're like, oh, really? I mean, you, you sit around and you write these es- esoteric essays that, that uh, you know, don't seem to have any relevance. But the point I think she was making was, you know, when we, when we step back and we take a very honest look at the world, look at how much is governed, not just in the explicit ways and in the, in the disturbed ways. And we think of, you know, religious terrorism, whether Christian or Muslim, or, or uh, we could think of uh, Hindi terrorism in, in, um, in India and so forth, uh, or what we see going on in, in Myanmar and, and, and so forth. So, I mean, there, there's that kind of overt religious implication, but there are much, much more subtle things. So think about the politics that govern the United States and this overarching belief of the myth of... Um, of kind of a Protestant work ethic or manifest destiny or the impacts on global climate change and the environment when we place ourselves as human beings at the center of God's creation and so forth. I mean, there are just so many things that don't seem at first glance to be theological or religious, but are. And I just think it's it's the greatest thing to be able to do that, you know, not just for a living like a job, but I, you know, I'm constantly in awe. I mean, it's not always a, a, you know, a piece of cake. It's not always a lot of fun. We all know there's lots of committee meetings and there's a lot of drama at times and there's a lot of work. It's a lot of hard work that I don't think people see because they say, oh, you're a professor and, oh, that must be so nice. You just go in and you talk and like, and it's not like that at all. <laughs> but, but it is amazing. It's, it's amazing to think that we can do this for a living and that it really does have such important implications. Well, one of the things that you just touched on really resonated with me and this notion of the private sphere. And here's how that played out with a lot of my undergraduates. So they would come into the class and I would try to challenge them in terms of their basic beliefs and not to undermine their basic beliefs, but just basically to surface those basic beliefs. What are the things that you find most important or the the least negotiable you know, in these kinds of questions, in these kinds of ethical questions, in these kind of moments that we, and I'd take moments from real life. But what I would find is that students had drunk the relativism potion in a very interesting way. They would come and they would basically entertain any idea that I would give to them with no risk to their actual core beliefs at all. Interesting. They would simply say, well, that, you know, some people believe that. Okay, so what do you think about the fact that some people believe it? Well, they do their thing and I do mine. Okay, well, which one is right? Well, I'm not going to say which one is right, but you, but, and, and I would, I would literally watch them wall themselves off in this kind of hermetic seal. They would offer nothing that could be challenged. And, and I think part of that was that I was teaching in the South and Mm -hmm. there, there were, there were entire communities that had warned these students about teachers like me. 
that, you know, the thought was that I was there to take their Jesus away or that I was somehow there to rob them of their faith, when what I wanted them to do actually was to be more firmly entrenched in their faith. I wanted the Jews in my class to be more firmly Jewish. I wanted the Muslims in my class to more embrace their 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 love of Islam. I wanted the atheists to be able to articulate their atheism more strongly, and I wanted Catholics and Protestants to be able to be more firmly Catholic and Protestant. Now, along the way, you know, if I could, if I could shake up some things and get some good conversations going across those divides, that was a bonus. But really, a lot of what I was doing, particularly in the introductory classes, was simply trying to get them to offer something that would be, that would be vulnerable in that moment. And that's really hard to do. It is. It is. I mean, and especially at that age, it's such yeah. a, a hyper self-aware, self-conscious age. Yeah. But and that's that's one of the things that I was talking about earlier too. That that um, you know I miss about the regular contact with undergrads is that once you break through that, once students get their intellectual and social sea legs, um, there is that opportunity for the spirit's work and some breakthroughs. And so that's it's 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 exciting in that regard. So. In any event, we have a really great segment at the end of, of this episode, so we're, we're probably going to keep this short. So maybe this is a good place for us to uh, t- take a break, yeah. um, and uh, we'll be back in a moment. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. Welcome back to the Francis Effect Podcast. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. We're switching now to talk about some fluctuations, some ups and downs, some uh, stock interests, as it were, this past few weeks. It's been somewhat tumultuous. And David, you have some thoughts on this, the market as false god. Well, so first of all, we're recording this show in the wake of the most recent market correction. And my understanding from the last time that I looked at this was that every gain that had been made in the stock market beginning in 2018, and so over a month's worth of gains, was wiped out in the, in the course of about six hours on one day last week. And that got a lot of people thinking and reflecting on the way in which we think about the market and the marketplace. For some commentators, and and I I will be bringing those in in the show notes, but for some commentators, it really made them think about the ways in which we are beginning to use theological language to talk about the stock market. And so think about some of these parallels. So, for example, we talk about, well, the market reacted today to this, and, well, we didn't take into account these proper indicators, and therefore the market did this. And, you know, the market is reacting with grace and beneficence sometimes when we do the right things, and the market is reacting with punishment or with withdrawal of, of the good things of life when we don't follow the market's rules. Well, it's been pointed out, and I'm not the, or, the originator of this, but it's been pointed out that we have a language to understand this, and the language comes to us in many ways from the rituals of the Old Testament. You know, the God that is wanting to have appeasement, the God, and not just from the Old Testament, but from ancient mythology. So these, 
the, the notion is that what we're looking at is a secularized religious language and that we are giving to the market the power that in the past had been reserved to the divine, the power to control our lives capriciously, the power to make some winners and some losers if we think about the predestination kind of thing. Some people are just destined to be moguls, and some people are destined to be paupers. And we end up layering onto that all kinds of moral ideas, all kinds of judgments and pronouncements. But it starts with a a basic problem, and that is we have evacuated religious language from popular discourse, and the market has gone into that vacuum and has taken over what we would normally say about divinity, but now it's econominity. It's an interesting, yeah, interesting interpretation. I think there's there's a lot of truth in that, though I might push back a little bit on, on a certain reading of an Old Testament understanding of God the Creator and the God of Israel, because we see, again, a, a correction of that. I think you're right. There is this ancient Near Eastern influence and then later a Hellenistic influence of this kind of uh, of a God and an omnipotent God and all powerful, all knowing God, which you're right, does kind of bleed into market language sometimes. But we also see in the Hebrew prophets, Hosea and others who are constantly like, I do not desire your sacrifice. I desire your love and your justice. I, and the prophets constantly calling the people of Israel and the leaders of Israel back to that, which really kind of undercuts that uh, Marduk or the, you know, the Egyptian sort of gods, or then the Roman and, and Greek gods that are like, just we are the pawns that they, you know, that they play with. So I think that's that's an interesting point. I think, yeah, there's been an adaptation. But, you know, if we go back also to ancient Israel, if we go back to even the, the ancient Christian tradition of the last 2,000 years, there's another term we have for this kind of discourse, and it's called idolatry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Using this language, you know, it, it's a violation of the first commandment, as it were. You're creating uh, another God, and it's a craven God created in our image and likeness, which is a God that benefits us and, and pleases us and, and, and uh, supports our way of living, which coincidentally, again, is is the, the starting point for the prophetic cry of, of all the great biblical prophets, which is, you know, a few people are benefiting from the structures and systems of society at the great expense of so many others. Well, let me switch gears then and move from theological language to Marxist language filtered through Louis Althusser. We are taking this thing that is a human creation. You know, the uh, the market is a human creation. It is It is governed by human rules, and it is subject to, and it is run by, and it is in many ways managed by and proliferated by human institutions. You know, there's nothing natural. The market did not fall off a tree. The stock market did not grow up out of the ground. It's not a rock that we found somewhere in some desolate place. It is a human creation, and yet we externalize it and we treat it as some kind of thing that has a power of its own, a mind of its own, a capriciousness of its own. And so your notion of idolatry is exactly right. It makes me think of a passage from, you know, the middle part of the book of Isaiah. The man chops down the tree, and half of it he uses to build a fire to bake his bread, and the other half of it he carves into a god. And then he kneels down in front of it and says, save me, save me, you are my god. And Isaiah comes back to that and says, you just used the one piece of this tree to make your bread and build a fire, and now you're worshiping this other thing. Can't you look at that thing and say, is not the thing in my hand a lie? And and in that sense, I, I want to kind of challenge this notion that the market has some kind of hand or will, or desire of its own. And I was really struck by these criticisms that came out that were trying to raise up this this theological comparison, because it allows us exactly, as you said, to begin to look at this human creation and say, 
real human beings are suffering and dying at the capriciousness of this thing that we have created. And will we not eventually look at this thing, the stock market, the market, the notion that somehow there are winners and losers in our society and that that's somehow right? Can we not look at this thing and say, is not this thing in our hands a lie? It's been interesting, too, the way that somebody somebody like uh, Donald Trump, President Trump, has talked about the market and has, over the last year, coinciding with his first year as in office, said, well, look at the stock market is hitting all these these great highs and, and so forth, and this is a sign of a great economy, where actually a number of economists have really pushed back and said, no, a high stock market is a sign of a high stock market. The economy is the lived experience of all these different vectors coming together, including wage increase, which by and large has remained stagnant in the wake of the Republican tax cut passage. A number of large companies have given out these now kind of cliched $1,000 bonuses to their employees, which is a one-time thing. That's nice to have, and, and, and certainly a good thing, for people to have uh, more money in their pocket in the short term. But meanwhile, these companies like Walmart and Bank of America and these other places will continue to benefit from the billions of dollars of revenue increase from not having to pay taxes. And that $1,000 check isn't coming back every month. It isn't coming back every year. The economists have pointed out that you know, kind of, again, to, to support what you've been saying, David, is that, that we put too much faith, deliberate choice of words, too much faith in the stock market as if it were this kind of entity or being, like you said, that exists on its own. It is kind of a collective it. It is a reflection of people who are benefiting from very, very few select people, very wealthy people who are benefiting from their own choices about essentially gambling on the futures of various companies and industries. There's a phrase that you used a couple of shows ago, this uh, Hebrew phrase, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mangle it, but tohu wabohu. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. so, so the, the Hebrew, basically, as I understand it, is, is the notion of kind of chaos and disorder. Yeah. Yeah, so what we see is that the, the market loves stability at the top, and so those that, that benefit the most from the market want to be able to predict where the market is going, and they want to be able to, to use those trends to, to move the market in certain directions. But for the rank and file who don't have the chance or the capital to participate in the marketplace, the stability at the top ends up becoming tohu wabohu <laughs> for those who are living paycheck to paycheck, day to day. For those for whom, you know, it makes sense to a mogul to move a factory from one location to another because it will lower a bottom line and it will increase revenue for shareholders. But for the lives of people that are actually living in that place, Michael Moore, the filmmaker, gave a talk at the, God, this was years ago, but he gave a, he gave a talk at the, uh, the Commonwealth Club out in San Francisco and he showed two slides side by side he showed the the building in uh, in Oklahoma City that had been destroyed by Timothy McVeigh and the bomb, and he showed an office building in Detroit, and they looked very similar. And he said the one was destroyed by a terrorist, and we say that's violent, that's horrible, that's wrong. This other one is reflective of a of a destroyed community because an industry decided to turn its back on these people. But we don't say that that's wrong. We say that that's just the market. And I'm paraphrasing, but I mean that begins to speak to what I'm what I'm saying. And I, you know, listeners by this time will know that I have a particular 
political cant on these sorts of things. I come at this not from the direction that the, that the Acton Institute would come from. I come from it from a very leftist perspective, from a very Acts 4 and 5 perspective. I really do believe that God's creatures should be more important than markets and market forces, that the markets should be created for man and not man for the markets. Yeah, well, it's interesting, too. The thing you just said about the the example of the destructive power of capital with the Detroit building as an example kind of reminds me of something that Thomas Merton, the great 20th century spiritual writer and Trappist monk, once talked about. He said, you know, violence is more than just bombs and guns and knives. And he said, violence today is actually white-collar violence. And he talks about the ways in which structures of society and in the economy are, to quote, uh, both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders from the 2016 uh, election uh, is rigged. It's rigged. And we need to take that into consideration. You know, thinking of what the Catholic Christian response to this is brings me back to the, the, the most regular refrain within Catholic moral teaching which is that the purpose of government, as is the purpose of regulatory commissions and of, of business and how we should order our household, which is oikonomia, the root word for economy, is, is how we organize and regulate the way we live and relate to one another. The common refrain is putting first the common good. Common is there. It is all people need to be taken into consideration. The stock market and a lot of the financial elite systems in a deeply kind of capitalist and consumer-driven society puts, as you rightly said, not the common good first, but the individual good of those who have invested. You buy in. You know, you're somebody who has dispensable capital or investment resources, and so you buy into a company. You buy stocks. You are a stockholder, and you then are the one whose value is primary concern of those making decisions about the livelihoods of others and the creation of products and services at sale and so forth. Meanwhile, the producers of that labor, the producers of that capital are the last to be considered if considered at all. And this actually stands in in stark contrast with Catholic social teaching. And this goes all the way back to Pope Leo XIII at the end of the 19th century in his landmark encyclical Rerum Novarum, in which he talks about the rights and dignity of workers and of labor, the right to unionize and so forth. This goes all the way through for whatever you might think of Pius Twelfth, John Twenty-Third, Paul VI, John Paul I, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and now Pope Francis. Every single pope has talked about this and has said that the purpose of government, the purpose of economy, oikonomia, is the common good. I just raised my fist in solidarity at the mention of Rerum Novarum, so listeners can't see that, but but it was there. <laughs> He's making quite a statement. Yeah, but I, so I'm, what, what I love in what you just did is that bringing a reminder to our fellow, our co-religionists, fellow Catholics, that this is not something that is being bolted onto the faith, but this actually arises from out of the faith because the world is a creation of God and that we are stewards of this creation in a way that is meant to be reflective of that oikonomia, that notion that we are a household together, and we have to learn to live together, and that economic divisions don't often lead to that good community. Instead, they create, and this is the thing that really bugs me a lot, is is that a lot of times we see people suffering from scarcity, but the scarcity is an artificial scarcity. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a creation of ours. You know, oftentimes things get reduced to questions of distribution, which becomes, you know, again, capitalist parlance for, oh, what I need is more money, and then I can 
create more effective systems of distribution. It masks over the, the Christian response and the Christian assessment of, of selfishness and greed. And I think that we can't lose sight of that. I think you and I are, are basically on the same page. I mean, in the sense that we're completely in communion with the church's teaching on this. Amen to that. Um, and there is, a, there is a weird kabuki dance and gymnastic backflipping that's required of those who identify as, as Catholic Christians and at the same time spout a certain capitalist idolatry, as we've been saying. You know, St. John Paul II is rolling over in his grave at the sound of that. He was no friend of, of communism, mm. you know, and worked very hard in solidarity with solidarity, among others, in Poland to help see the end of the communism in the USSR and so forth in the 1980s and 90s. But he was also as critical of what we call the so-called free market and capitalism and its unbridled, you know, valuation of people. So I think we, I mean, we're on the same page. I want to footnote something we could come back to at another time, which is the, the notion of stewardship in the oikonomia and the oikos, the household. I have very differing views on that. I have a book coming out in April where I, where I make it very evident I'm no fan of the term stewardship in theological parlance. So maybe we can talk about that again in the future. Well, yeah, and especially as, as we get closer to the, the book coming out, I'd love to talk to you about some of the themes in the book. Thank you for letting me kind of go down this rabbit hole a little bit. It's a it's a an issue that I feel very strongly about and and you know, it's one in which I'm willing to be educated consistently. So I do talk to friends who are who are from that other side of Catholicism who see the Acton Institute and other sorts of more libertarian ways of doing Catholicity as a viable option. I, I really do want to be in conversation with these people, partly because, you know, I'm going to have my blind sides and I'm going to have my own ideologies that are going to enter into this. And and in a fallen world, we need to be constantly open to the possibility of correction. And so thank you for letting me do this. But um, uh, we, we will come back in just a moment with a really wonderful and rich discussion with uh, Father Gil Ostig. You're listening to The Francis Effect, and we'll be back in just a moment. The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Liturgical Press, and we want to highlight a new edition of a book by Richard Gillardes that is coming out called By What Authority, which talks about the magisterium in the church. And Dan, you've actually used this book in your class. I do. It's uh, it's an excellent book. I used the earlier edition, and I'm very excited now about this new revised and expanded edition. It's not just for graduate students of theology. If you are somebody who has often wondered about how do we make sense of church teaching? What level of authority? What is respect? What is expected of the faithful in response to these respective teachings? I highly recommend this book, published by Liturgical Press, titled "By What Authority." So that's the new book by Richard Gallardi's "By What Authority," and you can find it both on the litpress.org website, and also we'll put a link to it in the show notes for the show. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. We're really excited today to have with us in the studio Father Gil Ostik, who is, like me, a Franciscan friar. We, we like to keep it in the family, go Franciscans. Actually, one of our last guests last season was a fellow Franciscan as well, Dr. Vanessa White, who is a secular Franciscan. I guess we'll have to be more inclusive and bring others in at some point, but... It would be welcome. <laughs> that's true. We Franciscans like to do that. We have Father Gill with us today, a professor of liturgy at the Catholic Theological Union, and we've invited him to come and speak with us and have a conversation about liturgy, in particular, liturgical translations, which is a topic that has, in the last few years, touched the lives of 
all sorts of people, not just professionals, not just experts and theologians, but everyday women and men in the pews who back in 2011 had an experience that we're going to talk a little bit about. Something of a shocking experience, I would say. But first, Gil, welcome. Thank you. We're, we're happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, perhaps before we get into some of the talking points about the liturgy, translations in the liturgy, the current translation, and the possibility of other translations, including some that do exist but have never seen the light of day officially, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with liturgical translation and, and that sort of work? It dates back to the mid-1980s. I was invited to become a member of ISIL's advisory committee and also the committee on translation, subcommittee on translation. Of and Gil, let me ask you just quick, for our listeners who may think of ISIL and hear ISIS, the, the bad Middle Eastern terrorist front, what is ISIL? <laughs> Wait a minute, are you part of an Islamic terrorist group? <laughs> Only hidden. <laughs> uh, no, ISIL is the International Commission on English in the Liturgy. It's a body comprised by the English-speaking conferences, uh, 10, of, 11, 10 of them actually, and uh, 11 other conferences that use English rather widely, even though it's not the first local language. And so these bishops banded together after Vatican II to begin to work collaboratively on producing English texts for use throughout the world. So ISIL basically serves uh, 25, uh, well, 20-some different uh, Episcopal conferences, preparing the English language translations used throughout the world. And so one of the tasks that ISIL, representing the English liturgical translations, was entrusted with was back in the wake of Vatican II in, in light of the reforms of Sacrosanctum Concilium to come up with the English translation. Can you tell us a little bit about how that work unfolded back, you know, in 69 at the founding of the commission? But uh, what what has happened since? Basically, how do we get from the Reformed Liturgy of, of, of the Council to the 2011 translation that we have? Well, actually, it began a little bit earlier than 1969. Ah, all right. Uh, in 1962, three bishops, one from America, Bishop Hallinan of, of uh, Georgia, I think, right? Atlanta, met with some others, uh, Bishop Grimshaw and, and another third bishop, and began to talk about, well, if we're going to be translating, because it was fairly obvious then that translation was in the air, why don't we work together and collaboratively? And in 1963, they actually formally established ISIL. So that was the birth of ISIL as we knew it. And then uh, started with 10 conferences. One additional conference came in, and then they invited the 15 uh, other conferences that were uh, widely using English to become part of it. In the, the same thing was happening with the other languages at the time, especially the, the modern European languages, French, Dutch, German, Italian. And in starting in 1965, Rome convened a meeting of all the people involved in translation into vernaculars, a week-long meeting to discuss uh, how the work was going, what the issues were, what was needed. Out of that came eventually, four years later, a document that was the instruction for translation, a guide for translation. It's often known by its French title. In fact, it was first sent around in French, and then each conference was invited to put it in their own language and make additions or further directions for the unique quality of their own languages. And out of that came then simultaneously approved in five different modern language versions, the 1969 instruction. 
even though it's called by the French title. It never, there was an attempt to, to after that, to make a, a Latin translation, an official text, but that never happened. So this is a, a fantastic example of collegiality where the bishops of the world and all the languages together worked out what are the guidelines for translation. And for well, our listeners, what, what is the title, the French title that's 69? Comme le pervoir. And what was the overarching sort of instruction presented to the translators of the respective language groups? It basically had three main goals in mind. One was to acknowledge that the vernacular is now to proclaim the message of salvation and express the prayer of the church. That was number one. Number two was that it was actually a means of, of oral communication. Uh, and thirdly, uh, that it was therefore to be respectful of the audience, the people who would hear this, and also the people who would speak it. So those were their three main goals. Toward that goal, they adopted without using this language, they basically adopted an approach that is often called dynamic equivalence, where it's you translate meaning for meaning, and the unit of meaning is not the individual word, not even the phrases, or the sentences to a certain extent, but more importantly, the entire passage, the paragraph. And so you look at the meaning of that paragraph and you translate that into the local language. And I want to get into some of these different translational philosophies, but prior to that, I think that there's a misconception among our Protestant friends oftentimes about the ways in which the Catholic Church has approached non-Latin language. And oftentimes when I was in graduate school even, you'd, you'd hear the myth that the Catholic Church was resistant to English translations of the Bible and before Martin Luther and all of that. And so I wonder if you, if you would just be willing to take a moment and just talk about the ways in which common language, even prior to Vatican II, because you said all this conversation was happening prior to Vatican II, how was the Church and how has the Church been thinking about common language? And you talked a little bit about the, the conveyance of the gospel. Expand on that for us. The more immediately, the decade and a half before Vatican II, the rituals of the Catholic Church for baptism, for marriage, and for funerals had already been put into English and other modern languages. So there was a gradual growth of, of translation of things that to me available in the local language. This goes back prior to that, uh, the liturgical movement. Part of their whole goal was to make the liturgy accessible to people so that they would actually be participants rather than observers, passive observers of the, of the liturgy. And so that's when the movement really picked up steam. Before that, it's a rather spotty thing in terms of the use of the local languages. And you talked about dynamic equivalence as the one of the guiding philosophies. What are some of the other options that were available in terms of translational style? We normally hear the contrast, almost polar opposites, between dynamic equivalence and what's called formal or literal equivalence. Formal equivalence is word-for-word -word translation. Dynamic equivalence is meaning-for-meaning -meaning translation. I prefer to think of them not as, as two opposites, but as two points on a continuum. And a continuum would stretch roughly from the literal formal side to the dynamic side. But in between, there's something called correspondence. Some call it functional, which makes use of both ends of the spectrum as is appropriate in a given case. And beyond those two are either extremes. The extreme beyond dynamic equivalence is called paraphrase, which is a very loose translation and in fact can become so loose that it's almost impossible sometimes to recognize the original source text. 
we've seen that actually in some scriptural translations, right? Yeah. There's this kind of popular Bible called The Message, yeah. which is kind of a modern paraphrase. And sometimes you read this and you're like, what on earth am I reading? Well, <laughs> one of the illustrations a friend of mine loves to use is the translation of a scripture passage in this way in English. The liquor is strong, but the meat stinks. <laughs> what is that a translation of? <laughs> Think about it. The flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. The oh. spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. <laughs> that's really, that's, oh, the spirit, oh gosh, liquor. That's the kind of thing, I know, years ago, I, I had a camera made in, in uh, Japan. And to read the instruction manual, when someone who was translating with a dictionary yeah. sounded crazy. Yeah. Some things were intelligible, some were not, because they found a word that they thought was equivalent, and they put that in. So, a loose paraphrase can become almost unconcerned with the original content. In fact, in poetry, sometimes the translation is to capture the sound of the poetry, not the content of the words. Mm. So, I mean, those are extreme cases. On the other extreme is something called metaphrase, which becomes so woodenly literal, you know, like the, the, the camera manual, yeah. that it makes no sense. So, I mean, words are, are stuck together that, that don't work together and don't make sense. Well, and you see that a lot, not only in the camera manuals, but, you know, especially in the age of the Internet, where you have Google Translate and these sorts of things. You know, I've worked with students, and I know you have too, yeah. who we, we are very blessed to have uh, such an international body of students, some for whom English is their second, third, or fourth language. And if they're relatively new to English, studying at the graduate level in English and stuff, sometimes they'll put a phrase from their native language into Google and they'll come back with something and it'll show up in a paper and you go, what on earth are, are they, they saying? saying? It may right. be literally correct, but there's so many variants, so many feelings, so many dimensions and, and this to the idea that's trying to be yeah. conveyed that it gets lost too. Yeah. So both approaches on whatever side of the spectrum you're on have both positive and negative aspects to them. I think the, the starting principle is this, that you can never translate exactly from one language to another. In any language, any given word or phrase has both a core meaning called denotation, and they're all related meanings, you know, associations called connotations. And the faulty assumption is that we, in each language, find one word that says it has exactly the same core meaning and the same connotations. And that's impossible. It's impossible. Well, I, I want to ask you a little bit about um, Pope Francis's motto proprio and talk about the magnum principium. But before we get to that, you know, on this topic about you can never fully translate word for word or even from one language to another, that something's always lost in translation. It reminds me of, on the one hand, our sisters and brothers who are Muslim this is something that's a tenet of their particular faith. And part of it is the theology behind their understanding of the sacred Quran, which is they, their understanding is the literal word of God that God communicated mm -hmm. to, to the prophet Muhammad in Arabic, letter for letter, word for word. And so there is no official translation into vernacular languages. It always has to be in Arabic. And so on the one hand, I, I can respect that and appreciate that because it supports exactly what you're saying, that if you believe this to be the literal word of God, then you can't translate it because translation is impossible. Yeah, but on the other hand, we have, even within our own Catholic Christian community, I think there are certain women and men who think that Latin is the Catholic equivalent 
of the Muslim Arabic. So Latin would be the language that God speaks. More or less. If not in a literal sense like that, then the way that they treat the liturgy is they'll say, I want to go back to either the, what is it, the 62 Latin liturgy or the Tridentine or some mm-hmm. version of the Tridentine Latin liturgy because that is, quote unquote, more basic and that it should, it should not be translated. Gil, what do you say to that? As a matter of fact, in the early church, the first Christian liturgies, used Aramaic and Greek. Greek, and not the cultured Greek, but the Koine, the common Greek. They used that for their scriptures, for their liturgy, for until the late 4th century, 380, 385 roughly, is when we began to use Latin. So Latin was not the original liturgical language for the church. The vernacular at that point was Greek. That was a commonly known language, and locally, probably in Jerusalem, they would have used Aramaic. It was a shock to the, the that group in the in the late fourth century that suddenly they're no longer using Greek, hmm. which was no longer that well known by most people. Uh, but they went to Latin, and they didn't go to the cultured Latin, the the very elite kind of Latin. They went to something closer to what was spoken normally by people. And you know, Jerome, when he translated the Bible, it's called the Vulgate, mm-hmm. vulgar means the common language of the people. So it was not, you think of the Lord's Prayer, huh? Jesus' prayer is very simple. It's not highly rhetorical. It's very direct, very simple. God speaks all languages. God knows all languages. So one is not necessarily sacred. And if there's something that we call the incarnation, that God came among us to live life as one of us, speaking and acting the way people of of a time acted. How then do people of another time get to know what the meaning is of what he said and did? And that's where translation comes in. Well, and you've talked about meaning for meaning and the notion of dynamic equivalence, but that presupposes that you know what the meaning is. And so that leads me to ask about the role of the magisterium in translation. And does the magisterium play a part in saying, okay, you have this obscure passage or you have this obscure part of the liturgy and the true meaning is this. Is is that an appropriate place for the magisterium to step in or is there... the, The guidelines, both the 69 guidelines and the more recent, acknowledge that translation is not simply, it's the, the responsibility of people in charge of the church that we would order, but the people in charge of the church do not have all those language skills and cultural skills because the meaning is, is culturally situated in the experience of the people and the social systems. It's what is spoken with all its living nuance. By the way, that's one of the problems with Latin, that it's no longer a spoken living language, and so it has stopped evolving all other languages that are alive evolve and change. That reminds me of class yesterday. We were going over the canons. This is in, in the Theology and Spirituality of Religious Priesthood that I teach at CTU. And we were going over some of the canons of the Council of Trent. And I went back to the Latin and I was, I was quoting a passage in Latin. And it occurred to me, I said, I don't know why I'm doing this with such an exaggerated Italian accent. I said, <laughs> because, and then I realized, I said, because I don't know how spoken Latin is supposed to sound. Yeah. You know, we the don't Italian do and the German theories are very different. Very different. But yeah. back to your question, if you're going to say the message delivered by God in any one place and time is meant for people of other times and places. And if they've gone through an evolution of language, then in some sense, that's what's required, is to to try to 
how do you then make that known and effective in a new culture, a new time and place? Is there a way to for the church authority to manage the translation, but the documents consistently say there need to be people who know both the original context and language, who, who can get inside of that language spoken at that time, and people who know the current language and culture equally well, who can be the bridge people. And the documents, particularly the one on liturgical enculturation from 94, say that at some point it depends on the use of locals, the wise, experienced wisdom figures of, of the culture to help craft what is to be the language of the liturgy. And, and Rome acknowledges that, that they don't have a, a little funny aside. Uh, this is supposedly a true story that I heard. The Indian church, the church in India, sent a translation of the Eucharistic prayer in, trans, in, in Sanskrit. No one in Rome could be found who knew Sanskrit. <laughs> so they finally noticed that the words, what we call the words of institution, words of consecration, were in capital letters. Those words must be the, the words of, of consecration. So they counted them. There was one less than there are in Latin. So they sent it back. It's obviously not. Accurate. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, we shouldn't assume that there are people in Rome who know these languages as native speakers do. And so in the end, they have to rely on native speakers who are thoroughly steeped, not only in their own culture, but in the culture of the original language, and who are respectful to the message of salvation being proclaimed. Well, um, with that background, maybe we can switch gears a little bit, because yeah. that's, that's really helpful to give us grounding for the situation we find ourselves now, yeah. and what the former editor-in-chief of, of the Tablet magazine in England describes as a disturbing story, end quote. And that's how we as English speakers, members of the ISIL countries and conferences of bishops, have come to receive what is now known as the 2010 English translation or the, the third typical translation of the English uh, of, the, of the Roman Missal. But there's, there's a couple kind of keystones that we've talked a little bit about, and I'm hoping you can help us understand some of what's going on in between. So in 69, we have the French instructions to the translators of the world that emphasize what we can call, just kind of by way of summary, the dynamic equivalent. Sure. The eight, is it 82, the first English? What's, what's the translation that we've been using until 2010? Uh, 1973. The 73 translation. Yeah. Okay. So there was a recognition that, you know, ISIL and others had said, well, we still, there's still work that needs to be oh. done. And so there had been in the intervening decades... ISIL and the consultants and the translators, theologians, liturgists have been working on another translation, which, which is now known to insiders as the 1998 ISIL translation of the Missal. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, what makes this, as Wilkins describes it, a disturbing story is that there's another kind of shift that's going on, something, a phenomenon that's going on that involves curial officials in Rome, members of the Congregation for the, uh, of Divine Worship, and they release in 2001 a new document that is very different from the 69 document about dynamic equivalence and gives instructions to do more of a formal equivalence translation. Yeah. And that is what then governs the translation of the missile that comes out in 2010 that we are praying with today. With those kind of points, can you tell us a little bit about what happened? 
Let me give you a longer version of the story. <laughs> okay, okay, good. <laughs> we're not going to start with Adam and Eve. Uh, well, they were speaking Latin, right? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, they, they probably were, <laughs> unknown to themselves. When English was allowed in, in moderate ways by Vatican II, within a couple years, the bishops throughout the world began bombarding Rome to widen that, to allow all everything to be in, in the, the local language. That led to a need to prepare a whole library of books. There were 30-some ritual books that were prepared within a five-year span. That's fast. Well, and which means they couldn't take great, a, a lot of care. It had to be done quickly because people were crying for these things. The editorial committee for the 73 translation, three people, all from the British Isles originally, although one came over to this country as a, as a teenager, but all formed in the English of that time, with the the ideal being concrete, graphic, very spare kinds of language. Mm-hmm. And that's what the 73 translation was. The ISIL saw in its instruction that there would be a, a three-stage process. First of all, translation. Secondly, after that translation had been used for a sufficient length of time to give some good experience, there would be an assessment and a, and a revision of the translation. And then thirdly, when that had been in use for a while, there would be probably a, a thoroughly original set of prayers composed. The translation and revision was sort of the school for us to learn how to do prayers. We hadn't done that for 1,500 years, so it was, it was something we had to learn <laughs> to do. Okay, so what happened was that the, if the 69 instruction basically allowed a more dynamic approach, what happened starting already in 1964 was that the authorities in Rome began to temper Two things that council had said, that it's, number one, the authority of the local bishops to to provide for and approve translations, and number two, that what Rome would do would be to ratify the, the work that had been approved by the bishops. It began to creep back into a centralized approach to this to the point where, in my last year's work on ISIL in the 1990s, the congregation in Rome was already actively intervening in the work of translation, which was not originally their thing. But there was a whole series of gradual withdrawal of the independence of the the local bishops' conferences and their authority, and the oversight of Rome being amped up in terms of actual involvement in translation questions. And and we Uh, see that actually parallel as well with the original intention of the council's restoration of synodality, you know, bringing bishops together to work in in a manner that we've actually seen more recently under the pontificate of Pope Francis. But under John Paul II, and to some extent, Paul VI before him, there was a kind of a diminishment of the authority, like you're saying, of bishops' conferences at the local level, but also at the synodal level uh, in Rome, such that they basically came and were expected to thumbs up some prepared statement. Centralization of authority that has crept back in. In part, you know, the popes come and go, the saying is in Rome, the curia lasts forever, (laughs) because they're the functionaries, the, the actual doers of things. And they're ensconced in their, their ways and, and their membership of their, their congregations. And so they began gradually to reassume their authority from the previous kinds of approaches. The, uh, another thing that was involved here is that when you stop to think about it, 
to put the prayers of the liturgy into the local language is the first and probably one of the most basic steps in enculturation. Because if you allow lingu- uh, the local language, you're bringing in the culture because those, those languages are crafted within a cultural context. And that initial openness to some enculturation gradually has gotten restricted more and more because now Rome takes control of the actual translation process. That's the long version of the story. So there's a gradual process of pulling back from authority of the local churches and the openness to enculturation. What Pope Francis did was to return to Vatican II and clarify what had gradually been shifted through Roman practice to clarify that the authority for approving translations rests with the bishops of the, of the conference, even the local bishop of, of a diocese. And secondly, that Rome's oversight authority then is to ratify what has been decided by the, the conferences. If it's a more significant kind of, of, of change, introducing new things or radical revisions of, of the ways in which liturgy are done, then Rome reserved for itself not only the ability to ratify, but also to evaluate and possibly to to ask for changes or a different direction. So what Pope Francis did was to return to the spirit of Vatican II and clarify what had become very muddied in terms of what were the lines of authority and collaboration. And so what you're talking about there with Pope Francis's return is this motu proprio that was released right. uh, right. last year, titled Magnum Principium. Yeah. Um, and so I guess our question following up, thank you for that additional background. The longer story as you put it, it's, yeah. it's very, very helpful. But how, what do you see as the significance of that motu proprio? What difference do you think it's going to make, if any? Well, I mean, let me be honest and open about this. I worked for 15 years for ISIL in this second phase of the revision. And so I'm thoroughly steeped in that way of thinking and, and looking. So that having been said, when I read the motu proprio for the first time, the, the apostolic letter of the Pope, a glimmer of hope was sparked in me that maybe what the Vatican II was about and what ISIL was about, and it's what I consider the years that I spent there, has a future. Um, the instruction, part of this, when ISIL was disbanded in, in the year 2000, and all the people who had been on it were dismissed, we were downsized, okay? At that same point, there had been a whole movement developing in Rome moving away from dynamic equivalence to formal equivalence, word for word. In 2000, so 2000 was the reconstitution of a new ISIL. 2001, the new guidelines for interpretation and translation. That's Two, the Liturgium Authenticum? Liturgium Authenticum. And then in 2002, there was a, a new edition, a typical, new typical, third typical edition of, of the Roman Missal which, by the way, was amended in 2008. So that's what the 2010 translation had to be accountable to. So and at the same time, when they reconstituted ISIL, they put another body uh, on top of ISIL. Uh, they put a, a, something called the Vox Clara, the Clear Voice, a gathering of English-speaking bishops and cardinals. They put that as the watchdog over ISIL's work and speaking with the authority of the Congregation of for divine worship and sacraments. That all came together then so that the translation that was produced took a very different turn 
that motu proprio, I mean, it, it, it's, it's intriguing to me that there are at least six places in which Pope Francis actually quotes or alludes to the, quotes the actual wording or alludes to the approach of the 69 instruction. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. The 2001 Liturgium Authenticum had used some of the same language, but immediately, almost immediately, they, they said, but... And then they modified it. So they said the same thing about, you know, the oral style of communication, the people who have to hear this, fidelity to the message. But they almost immediately qualified with the most exact and almost doctrinal. And this, they spoke several times of, of creating what they called a sacred language. Whereas, you know, like Ansgar Chapungo, one of the, the, the people with whom I worked, insists that the Latin language of the, of the patristic period was not a sacred language. It was a ritual language where you use ordinary words in a way that's, that identifies this as special. You know, just like ritual itself is doing ordinary things, but in an extraordinary way. And so it's, it's a ritual language for a large public gathering because it had to be able to communicate. And, and so this return to the word-for-word style and the more authoritarian approach now is, is put into question by the Pope. He says, number one, return the authority to the bishops. Number two, revise the practices of the congregation. You're not to be an alternative translator for, for things. Now, having said that, why the glimmer of hope? Maybe the 98 translation, which is far more readable, could be resurrected and, and improved. And just, if I can jump in there yeah. for our listeners, we, we've kind of danced around this. I, I mentioned it earlier and you're mentioning it now, but we haven't actually described the work of ISIL in the 90s. You were well, actually doing a revised translation. Oh, yes. uh, and, and it's it's complete. <laughs> it exists. It, it, yeah, there were 2,500 prayers that I was the head of the translation subcommittee and also on the final editorial committee. And there were 2,500 Latin texts that we had to revise and retranslate basically is what we did. In order to do that, ISIL conducted three worldwide surveys to all the bishops and heads of liturgy offices and anyone to whom they wished to send this. So there was more than a thousand, several thousand responses came back. And we had to sift through all those to say, what's been the experience of people? What works and what doesn't work? In fact, I did a, uh, on the report, the feedback on the uh, prefaces, I did a 200 single-line spaced summary, if you could call it a summary, of this whole stack of responses regarding the prefaces. Wow. And so it was a very open process, which is very unlike what happened with the present translation. It was very secret. Open, and we invited anyone who wanted to make a comment to do that, including the bishops themselves. But the lady in general has never seen or used this? this no. Okay. One one exception, uh, in the 98 translation, what we provided were original alternative opening prayers that drew on the imagery of the readings for that part of the cycle, A, B, and C. Those have been published in Canada and in England, those alternate opening prayers, and are used by some people. So those are known, but the bulk of what we did is, is totally unknown. Would, would you be willing, uh, you prepared in advance a really amazing chart that, because it's visual, our listeners won't be able to see, but I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with us some comparisons of translations, maybe read 
a, a passage of the translation from 2010 and what the 98 translation offers as okay, this the is, other translation. Yeah. This is one, O God, protector of those who hope in you, without whom nothing, is fir- nothing has firm foundation, nothing is holy. Bestow in abundance your mercy upon us and grant that with you as our ruler and guide, we may use the good things that pass in such a way as to hold fast even now to those that ever endure. So that's the 2010 translation. Yes. I'm not really sure what you just said, but... <laughs> this, is, this is what the 98th translation said. O God, protector of those who hope in you, without you nothing is strong, nothing is holy. Enfold us in your gracious care and mercy, that with you as our ruler and guide, we may use wisely the gifts of this passing world and fix our hearts even now on those which last forever. Beautiful. There's a poetry to that second one. Yeah. yeah. And that, actually, in that, the first three lines are basically literally following the Latin. Yeah. Uh, but it's in more accessible language. Mm-hmm. But then that uh, enfold us in your generous, your gracious care and mercy. That's multiplica supernos misericordia tum, misericordiam tum. Multiply upon us your mercy. I can Which remember is so weird. To well, say, it, literally, it, yeah. in our our discuss, editorial discussion, we said, but multiply is is mathematical language. Yeah, it, it has no soul, and we went back to the to the root multum multiplicare multum plicare, multum is often many, and plicare is to pleat to fold, huh? Huh. So it's manifold, folded many times. So we translated that as enfold us. But then it, to get the sense of bounty, we added not just mercy, enfold us in your gracious care and mercy. Wow, yeah. And part of that was, you know, nouns are not the only part of language. There are adjectives and adverbs and verbs. And Gail Ramshaw in one of her books suggests that we need to attend to all those parts of speech and translation. And we thought to ourselves, you know, in terms of the whole gendered language kind of issue, to enfold us, what, what human experience would that describe? Swaddling. Swaddling. Yeah. We, we, we enfold a baby. Yeah. But lovers enfold each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Caregivers enfold people. Friends enfold people and embrace. embrace. So enfold us has latent in it images of experience in our own culture that actually respect the multiplicare and multiply and fold manifold huh so there we used a more the first two lines are almost a straight literal translation mm-hmm. this line is a dynamic equivalence okay and, and bring us back again what so what does the 2010 say for that line it's the, the 2010? Yeah, instead of unfold us. Bestow in abundance your mercy upon us. Fractured English. Okay. Yeah. And grant that with you as our ruler and guide, and so on. Huh? Yeah. And then, so the, the, the last part is a, is a, so that we may use in order to, it's, it's a subjunctive clause, a phrase. We made that a coordinate, which is the, the more common thing in oral speech. You don't have complicated dependent clauses, huh? You connect things with and. So we translated the, the 2010s, grant that with you as our ruler and guide, we may use the good things that pass in such a way as to hold fast even now to things that endure forever. 
know, which is complicated. It says it, but it's complicated. We said, enfold us in your gracious care and mercy that with you as our ruler and guide, we may use wisely the gifts of the passing world and fix our hearts even now on those which last forever. So we made that a parallel, that we may use the passing things and fix our hearts rather than we may do this so that we may. Huh? So it's the, the Walter Ong's work on, on oral cultures. Huh? One, of the, one of the ways that oral cultures connect things is not by subordination and, and relative clauses or conjunction. They only by conjunctions and like the gospel of Mark, this and this and this, and the hearer can figure out what is, what is the, the, you know, you don't put that in words. The inscribed language of a literate culture enables you to go back to the text and figure out, like in grade school, I was taught to diagram sentences, uh, relative clauses, subordinate clauses, prepositional phrases. Uh, So you can figure out the subordination and and the relationship. In spoken language, you don't have time to do that. It's all in memory or it's not there at all. Huh? And so you coordinate things. It's a different kind of speech. And, and you know, oratio in Latin doesn't mean, well, we get from that oration, orator. We also get oratory. And there's a difference there, isn't there? Oration, orator is one who speaks. Oratory is a place of prayer or orons. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, Eminghaus says oratio in Latin means prayer dash hyphen speech. It's prayer speech. And that was a constant concern in, on ISIL when I was there, that, that we're, we're talking about oral prayer, which has to be heard with the ear and pronounced with a tongue, by the way, so it has to be intelligible <laughs> to both the tongue and the ear. It's oral, yeah. oral. Yeah. And so we were very concerned about the oral quality of our prayer. And we adopted a rhythm, which is part of you know, the whole complex of, of how you communicate orally. We adopted the, the approach of the Elizabethan period of, of English. That's from 1588 to, she died in 1603, I think, something like that. Which, which provides a kind of classical milestone yeah. for, for the, you know, for English. Well, because in that period, most people say at least 95% of the people in England were functionally illiterate. They could yeah. not read. Yeah, so how do you communicate best orally? So you communicate for it to be heard, not to be read with the eyes. And that's all of, well, Book of Common Prayer, King James Version of the Bible, all of Shakespeare, even as far as Milton and Dryden. Those things were all written to be heard with the ears, not to be read with the eyes. And that's the difference when you do word for word and and get a, a very complicated construction. That means that you have to be able to read the text to make sense of it. You can't do that just on first hearing. Well, we really appreciate, Father Gill, this, this background, this, the, the glimmer of hope, as you said. There's so many things we're realizing. We're, we're out of time, so we're going to have to wrap up. But, uh, can we, I do one more prayer? You can't. Well, why don't we close with that in, okay. in a second? I just wanted to say that to, to our listeners, you know, stay tuned and, and, uh, and, and keep reading and learning about this. Uh, I have to recommend a great book by John Wilkins and Jerry O'Collins called Lost in Translation about mm-hmm. this. And, and you can learn more. Um, Father Gill's work is cited in there, as, is in, in, so you can follow up on that. But one of the things we haven't even talked about is the theological problems of some of the literal translations. For instance, this pesky word that St. Augustine hated 
hated so much, merit. <laughs> so yeah. we won't even get into that. But but Father Gil, maybe you, clo- you can close our segment out with uh, one more pa- prayer translation. This is a, probably my favorite prayer of the entire work that we did. Uh, it's written in the, the winter of 538 by Pope Vigilius when Rome was under siege by the barbarians and it was clear that Rome would be sacked and destroyed. And so what you pray for in that kind of inevitable disaster is that there would, some order would emerge out of this, that there would be peace and security, and that God would protect us. That's, so that's the content of the prayer. In the editorial committee, we decided this is the only case where we decided to use a poetic meter. Uh, in the oral rhythm of English, there are speech stresses, like in, in Shakespeare, two, two stresses per half line, sometimes one, so rarely three, but usually for a complete line, you would have four speech stresses. So it doesn't go by accent, but this time we used a poetic meter, and the meter we chose was iambic, short-long, which has two derivative uh, rhythms, short-short-long, which is anapest, and long-long, which is spondee, because if you use those, <coughs> excuse me, those three rhythms, variations of one basic rhythm, you can suggest orally to the ear that there can be order in this disaster. Huh? Mm. And so the prayer reads, direct the course of this world, Lord God, and order it in your peace that your church may serve you in serenity and quiet joy. If you parse that out, in terms of meter, all three of those meters are present in that prayer. Thank you so much. Amen. <laughs> Amen. It's been great to have you, Father Gill. Thank you for sharing with us your experience, wisdom, and expertise. It's, it's my pleasure. Thank you. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studio here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should check them out at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout-out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisaffectpod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes you can check out from our first season. Please go back and listen to those. Thanks for listening.